And in the second psalm, if you're there, say amen. And the word of God reads like this. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possessions. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You may be seated. I know that this world that we're living in is going in the wrong direction, to put it lightly. And I know that this nation of ours that we love, um, we're very... We're proud to be Americans, obviously, for the, for the freedoms that we have. Um, but even then, I mean, it's pretty obvious that our nation is going in the wrong path. And I think that in light of the past decade, or maybe more than that or so, we can safely come to the conclusion that it might not matter as much about who's the president or who's the governor or who's the mayor because God will not necessarily dictate what he does with a group of people by uh, whether by one person, but God deals with people individually. And I know that in this day and age that we live in, at some times it might seem a little bit hard to consistently live for God. I know that it can be hard to cling to the faith. I know that people will fail you. I know that your leaders will fail you. Um, And yet we all know at the same time that God will never fail us. We know that. But at the same time, it can be easy to forget that. It can be easy to forget only in practice because nobody is going to say, especially when they're standing behind a pulpit, nobody's going to say that I question whether whether or not God will be faithful to me. But in practice from time to time when things are hard enough, when you're going through enough, when your family is going through enough, when there are things that you have really been praying for God about for a very long time and they just haven't come to pass, or debatably the worst case scenario, something does come to pass, but it's the opposite of what you, what you thought that you needed from God. In times of harsh tribulation, uh, it can be easy to cling to that faith continually. Um, And I just want to minister for a few minutes tonight. Faith in times of hardship. So won't you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. And God, even in spite of 
this world and all that it's doing against you, in spite of this vain effort that so many people put against you and against your people, we can continually look to Golgotha's Hill where our help truly comes from. For our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And God, please encourage us tonight because we are living in a very, very rough time, God, where we ha it seems like we have no real leaders to look to. We have uh, sometimes not even our own families and friends to look to. And really remind us that in spite of all of this, we can continually look to you for as you tell us yourself, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we'll be sure to give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, I should have told you this. I hope you still have your Bibles open to the second psalm. I want to just go through this chapter real quick. It's not a big psalm. It's very short. It's very direct. And it's all about Jesus. And the first few verses read, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. These first three verses are talking about the world and what the world thinks about Christians. Now, overall, this chapter, this psalm, is talking about the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a prophetic psalm because overall it depicts Jesus uh, for, as a lot more than what a lot of uh, what you'll hear in a lot of churches today. And it's not a bad thing what a lot of people preach about Jesus, but it is the mainstream idea at, at the forefront of it all that Jesus is, you know, he and he is. He's a he's a very loving, tender shepherd to his sheep. He's the leader of the church. He loves us so much, loves us literally to death. Uh, we know all of this, and it's right that we preach Jesus like that. The only thing that concerns me is I wonder if we're forgetting this one aspect about Jesus, because we know that Jesus is our shepherd. We know that Jesus loves us. We know that Jesus is our Savior, and these aren't, these aren't Christian cliches. They're 100% true. But I wonder if we're forgetting the fact of the matter that Jesus has been appointed by God himself as the king of kings. I feel like that's something that we forget often, that Jesus Christ is a ruler, and he's the greatest ruler of, of all of them. And these first three verses, specifically, you can tie to the hostility that will be against the people of God, mainly the Jewish people, mainly Israel, during the Great Tribulation period, how the world will be completely against them. And we're at that point when uh, the, the Jewish people, or really just the people of Israel, I don't know if that includes Gentiles probably, but that's not a point of emphasis I'm trying to make. Right before, presumably, when they cry out to God and confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior... And yes, that, that is very applicable. But the nature of the world, the nature of the rulers of the earth who are under the influence of this world, this can be applied to rulers and kings and just, yeah, all throughout history. In the ancient Roman Empire, or it was either Roman, Rome or Greece, I don't know. I get the two mixed up all the time. 
But there was a leader at that time. His name was Domitian. And he was at that time the biggest persecutor of the body of Christ. There are some people who consider Domitian to be a type of the Antichrist because of the extreme eerie similarities between him and who, we, who is depicted to ultimately be the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation period. He was basically a Hitler before Hitler's time. He hated Jews. He hated their God. He put people who did not agree with him, especially Christians, to death constantly because he wanted to be the God of his empire, not Jesus Christ, not the God that those Christians knew. And you look at today, specifically in the Middle East, you look at places like China, how the world is so concentrated on devising against the people of God. And I think it's interesting how how we talk about how divided our world is, specifically our nation that we live in. We talk about how divided it is and how nobody can agree on anything. But you listen to this in the second verse, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And it's interesting to me how Nobody can agree on anything, but when it comes to defying the living God, everybody gets together in a heartbeat. And that's just the nature of the world. That's what we have to face, and that's what the people of God have always have to face. And until Jesus comes again, that's what we're going to keep on facing. Nothing new is happening in the world right now. Things might be a little more extreme than they were a decade or two ago. But at the end of it all, this is just the nature of the world. This is the nature of the flesh. This is the nature of the devil right here. Whatever goes against God, the devil will try to use that against God. And then these next few verses, beginning at verse 4, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. The world and all of its hostility against the body of Christ, against the church, against the people of God. The Lord's response to this, as is said in verse 4, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. So the Lord God is responding to all of this stuff. All of this intense persecution that we, in and of ourselves, often grow scared of, the Lord looks at this and He laughs. He looks at it in the same way that we would look at a sitcom. He laughs at all of the efforts that the world devises against Him and His kingdom. Because if anybody understands that the world doesn't stand a chance against God, it's God. God understands Himself better than anyone else. He understands the world better than anyone else understands the world so god understands just how powerful he is and at the same time he understands just how weak and timid the world is even in its prime and he looks at any time the world shows hostility towards him and he laughs at it and his response directly to all of this persecution all of this stuff is yet i have set my king upon my holy hill of zion his response to this is more than just a laugh, but it's a declaration of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's answer to the world's hostility. In, in the second psalm, 
And in these next few verses, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possessions. So basically, all of these nations that devise against the Lord, who devise against his anointed, who devise against the people of God, all of these nations amount to nothing more at the end of the day than as the inheritance of Jesus Christ. And we continue in this chapter. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. We're presented here in those three verses with the power of Jesus Christ and the might of Jesus. We see Jesus really in his sovereign glory. We see Jesus in this passage of Scripture as God the Son. We see Jesus as the ruler of the earth. And to those who oppose him, he shatters them with a rod of iron. He shatters them like a potter's vessel. And I don't know if you've ever held like an actual pottery vessel, a clay vessel, but those are very easy to break. And the fact that he's using a rod of iron, this illustrates just how easy it is for Jesus to basically maneuver his way through all of the, all of the world who stand against him, or think at least that they can stand against him. And then that, usher, uh, that ushers us into a warning, which the fact that the kings of the earth are given a warning by God in the first place, in and of itself, is an act of grace, because God doesn't have to warn anybody of how dangerous he is when you brand him as an enemy. But the fact that God does say, this is what I am capable of, so be very wise, these last concluding verses. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Be wise now, therefore, O kings. What's interesting is that it doesn't say be knowledgeable, it says be wise. Knowledge is obviously knowing about something, but wisdom, you know, you don't even have to know that much about something. If you don't know a lot about a cliff, you know, the unwise person says, I can walk across this cliff and they end up falling into the cliff. But a wise person says, if I try to walk across this cliff, I will fall and die. You don't have to know necessarily how exactly high a tall cliff is, but you can automatically discern whether or not, usually at least, a cliff is high enough to kill you if you try to walk off of it. God isn't asking that these kings know everything about him and just how powerful he is, because really nobody can know that. That's something that God really, I don't want to say can't reveal, but won't reveal to us because it's out of our understanding. Nobody can understand everything about God except for God himself, if that makes any sense. So it's in our best interest, and I'm not saying to not pursue after the knowledge of, of who God is, but I'm saying in this context, in this psalm, it's in the world's best interest to understand that whoever this God is, he's more powerful than I am. It's best that I'm on his side and not against him. 
And then you go into verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And then we get into verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. I find it very interesting that it says that it's it, this, this verse says, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. In other words, Jesus is going. If you're in his way, you will just be removed from his way, probably by him. If you don't honor Jesus, he's going to move through your territory with you or without you. Either way, this, these nations are already his. If you don't want them to have, if you do not want Jesus to inevitably take possession of this land, it doesn't matter because he will take it with you or without you. When his wrath is kindled but a little. That's very interesting because it shows us that this judgment that is going against all of these nations is but a little of God's wrath. It's very interesting. All of this wrath that these nations will not be able to fight against, this judgment, this strength, that they will not stand a single fighting chance against at all. It's one thing when you're executing God's people, but when God himself comes down from heaven, you're dead. Even before you're a goner, you're a goner. And, but, and even then, this indisputable judgment is just a fraction of what God is capable of. And even then, that might be exaggerating, probably less than a fraction of what God could truly do. And then the conclusion of this psalm is, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. So this psalm is a prophetic psalm. This psalm is warning nations that are hostile against God and hostile against His people. But it doesn't conclude with a sense of hostility. It concludes with an exhortation to all of those who put their trust in God and what He has provided for us, being Jesus Christ and what He has done for us on the cross. Blessed are all who put their trust in Him. And I think in times like this especially, it's important to remember that our life here on this earth is temporal. And I don't just mean that on a government level, because I mean government is its own problem but the things that we have going on in our own lives the things that we have going on that you know the government just could never help out with as if it ever could the things that nobody else knows about us all of that is temporal because the fact is we're going to spend eternity with Jesus we're going to spend eternity in the perfect kingdom under a perfect government I think it's very interesting. Um, I, th I think, I, I mean, it's very interesting to look at how a lot of Christians acted this past election season. Not just these past four years, but specifically when the election season kicked off, when everybody was talking about who are you going to vote for and who are you going to vote for. What I was bothered by and my word doesn't mean that much, but it is a conviction that I have, was the hostility that I saw from many Christians. Um, what I found to be interesting was that after the election happened, 
and us, the people of God, just did not get what we want. Whenever there was a broader door open to more hostility against us, whenever that door that we thought was shut and preserved for a while that was holding back forces of evil, powers of darkness, persecution, etc., when that door, and this is just the consensus that most Christians have come to after the last election season, when that door has creaked open just a little bit, now we're more content with saying things like, well, this life is just temporal anyways. We're not going to be here forever anyways. It's almost as though when we were under one leader who catered more to what we wanted, and you know, in light of what we just read, that is the best option for any leader in any world, to cater towards what God wants. But when we had one leader who was more lenient towards the people of God compared to another leader who was less lenient towards the people of God and what God really wants for this earth, now that the fire is heated up just a little bit, and I mean that, just a little bit, I don't think things are as bad right now as a lot of people say that they are. I I believe that things can get a lot worse, and they probably will get a lot worse. But I just think it's very interesting how now we have the urgency to encourage each other during hardships because the government is worse than it was in the past. Meanwhile, throughout that entire time, you know what's interesting about 2020 is that the suicide rate in this nation skyrocketed because everybody was by themselves. Nobody really had a job, especially in these big cities. The suicide rate skyrocketed, but nobody really talked about that. And I'm not saying that we had to be advocates or activists or anything for people who commit suicide. I'm just saying that it's very interesting that now we want to be more caring towards one another. Now we want to talk about more biblical things because our government has given us less hope than I guess they did a few years previous to now. Now, the president, God bless his heart, and the vice president, God bless her heart, I mean, they're going to try and do what they do. They're going to stick to their agendas. They're going to do political things that cliche politicians do. And if this term passes, and let's say four years from now, there is someone else uh, who's better suited in regards to biblical precedent in office. Praise God for that. But we're going to have to prioritize the word of God above all else even then, even when things are good for us. Because even when things are good for us, those good things are just as temporal as the bad things for us. Now the leaders of this world, as good and as bad as they can be from time to time, are going to continually disappoint you. I hear this from people who are... I'm not trying to plead the ignorant youth here. I hear this from a lot of older people all the time. The world will disappoint you all the time. Your family will disappoint you on occasion. Your friends will let you down. And I hear people say it all the time. But Jesus will never let you down. I'll never forget this. And I think it really showed a lot about where the church is right now. Because y'all know I work at the radio station. And if you're familiar with the ministry, you know how they like to talk every now and then about those emails that they get, those loving emails that they see all the time. And they really don't mean loving, they really mean emails that just criticize them all the time. Well, we get to see those emails because what we do at radio is we filter through all of the emails that come to the ministry and we get rid of the junk mail and we forward the rest of the, of the emails that are legitimate. We forward those to the administration offices 
and I guess they distribute it to the individual ministers or pastors or whatever. And I saw, I'll never forget this, I saw an email, I read an email that a real person once sent after the election happened. And this email said, I think after this election, this is what this person said, after the election, I think God has failed us. After the election, I, I'm wondering if God has failed us. Are we really that dependent on who we vote for? Are we really that dependent on people in general? To the point to where we put into question that God is a failure? Of all people, God Almighty... There were a couple friends of the faith, Christians, that I had talked to one time who were worried about the outcome of the I'm going to keep a sharp eye on how people react this next election season, particularly all of us Christians, myself included, by the grace of God, because I'm only as human as anybody else, and I've, I can't say that I haven't had similar thoughts of other people. But I was talking to a few friends who were in the faith one time and they were worried about their future, about the election cycle and whether or not things turned out for worse rather than better. And I tried encouraging them in light of Scripture. I tried bringing up how the people of Israel, when they were brought into captivity, which for the record, if you read in Jeremiah, that captivity was orchestrated by God. It wasn't allowed by God. It was orchestrated by God. The prophet literally says, the Lord has brought you into captivity. But even in the midst of captivity, the Lord was faithful enough to sustain the people who were brought into captivity. As a matter of fact, when the captivity had ended and the Babylonians said, if you want to go back home, you can go back home now. You can go back to Israel, all of you Jews. There were literally some Jewish people who did not want to leave Babylon. Because during that time of captivity, they set up businesses, they made good incomes, they were able to provide for their families. And it's not because Babylon was good to them, it's definitely not because Israel was good to them, but it's because God was good to them. The people of Israel, when they were first brought out into the wilderness before they had actually established their kingdom by the providence and grace of God... We know these stories about how they constantly complained about everything. Whenever they approached the land of Canaan, or was it another place? Anyways, how they constantly complained against God, even though God was providing for them each and every single day. It even got to that place to where they noticed how every other nation had a king, and they wanted a king. And God didn't really want them to have a king because if God is ruling your country, why do you need a king? If God is in charge, why do you need something far subsequent to that? But even then, God was faithful and gave them a king. And it ultimately would turn out for the worse rather than the better. But even then, when God gave them a king, knowing they didn't really need a king because they had God, God was still faithful to give them a good king after that first one. God would raise up David 
who despite all of his faults is still regarded by many people as the greatest king in Israel's history. We read about it in the Chronicles, how during a whole era of just idolatry and rebellion, in the middle of that, there's just a breaking point where God raises up another faithful king, Hezekiah, who honors God far more than many people before him and after him. Even in the midst of God's own people, his own people's adversity, God was faithful enough to give them good leadership. And I got good news. There's coming a king who's greater than David, who's going to rule over the entire earth, not just Israel, but the entire earth. According to this last verse, all they that put their trust in him. And I know we don't read about his name here in this, in this passage of scripture, but you all already know who this is talking about. This is about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. During the Great Tribulation period, and I don't, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I, I know most people, at least in this sanctuary, to know that the major, at least the major, all of us, yeah, it's all of us, affirm a pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that the rapture of the church is going to happen before the Great Tribulation era. That's where I stand. I know that's where a lot of you, at least most of you, stand. But at the end of the day, when you're faced with that question, okay, will it really happen at the beginning or at the end? It's more of a secondary issue than anything. Please don't center your walk with God on whether or not the rapture happens before or after the Great Tribulation. Please don't do that. Because the worst case scenario for you is that you're wrong about that. And let's say that the rapture of the church does happen at the end. I don't, I don't believe that. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But let's say that I'm wrong and it happens at the end. After seven years of the worst tribulation that this world has ever faced, the greatest persecution that the people of God have ever had, you want to know what's going to happen to some degree or another? God is still going to be faithful to His people during that time. Even if He's faithful to them to the point of death, what does the Bible say? That it's not His will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if God has to be faithful enough through you suffering here on this earth just for the sake of you preserving your faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done for you at the cross, to God, it's totally worth it. And to you in eternity, it would have all been worth it. These leaders of our world who honestly think that there's something better out there than God and what He has given us on the cross, yeah, they have no idea what they're talking about. They have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. They don't know what it's like to follow after God. They clearly don't know what it's like to know God. But at the same time, I am reminded consistently. I look at our leadership right now. I look at our president. Again, God bless his heart. And our vice president. Again, God bless her heart. And I look at these people and... I read a tweet from our vice president the other day, beginning with, prayer is not enough. That's a first, even in my life, where I've heard a leading politician of that degree, of that caliber in this country, begin a whole statement with that. Prayer is not enough. But I'm reminded all the time when I look at these people in authority, I look at how 
Well, just to be there, because you know, you're going to know who I'm talking about, even if I try to be vague. I look at how the Democratic Party is passing all of these laws that go against the precepts of God. And then I look at our precious Republican Party, how they do absolutely nothing with their time. I look at all of this stuff, and I'm reminded of King Nebuchadnezzar, according to Daniel's book, according to Daniel's account, in the Old Testament book that that bears his name in the fourth chapter, a man that God would use to bring Israel into captivity who did not know God. And in the fourth chapter of Daniel, you're reading his testimony. A leader of the great Babylonian empire. Four chapters into the book of Daniel, you learn about his salvation experience with the living God. And if somebody like that can come to know God, if a Roman emperor can come to know God on his deathbed, why in the world should we just look at our leaders who are less mighty than these men we read about. I understand by today's standards they're stronger, but if we're, you know, using the same standard here, who know less than these men we read about in the Bible, who are less devoted to their nations than these men we read about in the Bible, why in the world would we ever want to give up on our leaders in regards to prayer? The vice president says that prayer is not enough. And let me tell you, that's exactly what the devil wants the church to believe. That prayer is not enough. But listen, prayer is enough. If for no other reason than this, prayer is an institution created by God. And if God says, this is how you're going to speak to me, this is how you're going to ask of me, and not only that, but ask of me, and it shall be given, then now's a good time to pray, I'd say. Because at the end of the day, what has happened, what we read about in this psalm is going to come to pass either way. There are two things that are very interesting. Something I learned in Bible college. There's God's will and then there's God's plan. It's God's unstoppable plan that the rapture happened, that the second coming of Christ happened. It's God's plan that what happened on the cross did happen. You read about it in Genesis 3.15. God tells the serpent... I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Her seed shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Oh yeah, that's, that's God's plan. And there's no stopping his plan. But we also read that it's not his will that any should perish, as I mentioned a moment ago, but that all come to repentance. But that unfortunately does not mean that none will perish and that all will come to repentance. That doesn't mean that. He wants that to happen. And it doesn't diminish God and his power at all. It simply tells us who God is. It affirms to us definitely that God has given us a free will. And it doesn't mean that God wants to abandon anybody. There's only one place where I can think where God has abandoned anybody, and that's in hell. Hell's the only place that I can think about where God has actually abandoned people. As long as they are breathing here on earth, listen... There is hope for everybody. I don't want you to think that... that I don't want you to have such a low view of lost people, especially lost people in power, who are going to play a big role in your life, whether you like that or not. 
I don't want you to th- I don't want me to think so low of these people to the point to where I give up on them in prayer. We hear it all the time, pray for our leaders, but I'm disturbed when I think about how many people actually do that because whenever you talk about praying for your leaders, you, you talk about praying for Biden or Harris or any of these people, I've heard it and it's and it's not what they say, it's the way they say it. Oh, I'll pray for them, all right. Well, let's stop right there. By that tone of voice, what are you praying for exactly? Are you praying for their salvation or are you praying that they get hit with a steamroller? What, are, what exactly are you praying for? Are you praying that they get shot and killed? Or are you praying that the same God who saved you deals with them the same way that he dealt with you? Our role in the second psalm, if you really wanted to look at it, you remember how I said at the beginning of this message that a lot of people want to apply so much of the Bible to us. If you want to know how the second psalm applies to us, these leaders... They're not dead by the end of the psalm. They're not in hell. Or as I guess they called it back in that day, Sheol. They're not, they're not in hell. They don't die lost. That's not the note that it leaves off of. They're warned of what definitely can and probably will happen to most of them when Jesus comes back. But that doesn't mean we have no real concrete reason to come to the firm conclusion that these leaders have to die and go to hell. At least not when we have anything to say about it. I'm not saying that we can confess their salvation into existence or anything, but I'm saying that God has given His church the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. I think we often forget about the power of the Holy Spirit beyond speaking in tongues and prophesying in this big theatric, I don't want to say theatrics, but I mean what we've made that stuff out to be here in the United States especially, God has given us the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, who even when we don't know what to say, intercede, or, uh, yeah, I guess you could say that, intercedes, prays for us anyways, because God's not listening necessarily for what you have to say. He's listening for your heart, if that makes any sense. God's asking from you right now the same thing that he did ask from you when you first came to know him upon your initial salvation experience. He's not asking for what you can do. He's asking for you, plain and simple. He's not asking for your hands or your feet. He's definitely not asking for your mouth. He's asking for your heart. That's what he wants. Where's your heart at? This stuff will happen. God has the final say. And we read, it's very, it's, I mean, it's not even implied in this chapter how mighty and how powerful Jesus is mainly to them who are against him but it says at the end also definitely no speculation whatsoever that those who put their trust in him are blessed I want I want to be blessed I want you to be blessed and it is biblical for us to want our leaders to be blessed with the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ because that's the biggest blessing that all of us have going for us I was doing some ministry in Tennessee last weekend and I preached a message entitled All That You Have. And I talked about how in the second chapter of Acts, because that's the Pentecostal chapter of the Bible. I mean, if you hear a message about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's probably going to come from Acts 2, half the time at least. 
And even then, if you read through that entire chapter, the end result of the speaking in tongues of the big sign and the big wonder, what's the end result at all of, at the end of all of that? Does it make Christians superheroes? Does it make Pentecostals more privileged than Baptists? That, that's how we like to act most of the time, at least. No. 3,000 people who do not know God get saved. Because that's the biggest purpose of speaking in tongues. That's the biggest purpose of the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant that we don't even use today. All of it is to point to the kingdom of God, which is only, you know, manifest in, in Jesus Christ. And the speaking in tongues is for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. It serves the main purpose for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, this, this, this passage of scripture does say, Be wise, kings, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We don't have to look at these leaders as our personal antagonists. We don't have to look at these leaders as the villains of this story. I mean, I'm sure they are. They, I mean, you can, you can, but at the same time, if God gave you, if God allowed you as much power as he allows these rulers to have who mock him, who go against him, before you came to know Jesus Christ and before the Holy Spirit changed your heart to know Christ in a deeper way and to actually love God, before that, when it was just you in and of yourself, if God gave you this much power, if he allowed you this much power, there's no guarantee that you wouldn't be as hostile to him as these people are. Jesus said that there are none who seek after God. There are none. Really what happens is, in your salvation, all you have to do is say yes or no. When you read through the Bible, it's the Holy Spirit that draws you to Christ. And when you come to that place to where it is either yes or no, you said yes. And after that, the Holy Spirit has still been taking care of you, not just in a comforting way, but in a disciplined kind of way at the same time, been taking care of you that this entire path. So I don't mean to sound like I'm jumping around everywhere, but... At the same time, my, my big goal tonight is to encourage you to keep your faith in what started this walk with God to begin with. When you got saved, all God asked for was your faith in the right object. And as a, a dear brother in the Lord gave a very wise word of encouragement a few months ago, you don't even have to know, you don't have to know how important faith is, you just have to have it in the right object. And if you need any prayer, these altars are open. Uh, if we'd like to pray for our leaders, I mean, we can obviously do that. But I'm going to close this message with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to just leave, and whoever wants to, I don't know, whoever's going to, I don't know, whatever after me can do whatever they do. And, all right, so won't you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we once again, we thank you for this day. And God, we don't rely on cheap optimism for our hope and glory, but we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, our true blessed hope. 
and God, we read in the Bible accounts of men who despised you, men who, if they could, would spit in your face. We read about the same men who you would use to write the majority of the New Testament about how before he came to know you, he put your people to death. But he's in heaven today. As far as we know, Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven today. And there's no reason that we should dismiss our leaders today and go to this immediate place where we say that anybody is too far gone. And God, we do pray for our leaders because we understand that apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we stand in the same place that we stood, in the same place that they stand right now. And if you saved us, you can save them. We're believing for this these true miracles, God. The days of miracles are not over. And we're believing for the salvation of our leaders. These rulers, these kings that we read about in the second psalm, God, these, these rulers that we see on the news, that we see in our country, we pray for their souls, God. Because at the end of the day, you are all that we have going for us. You and what you have given us at Calvary is truly all that we have going for us. And God, we ask that in these difficult seasons of pain, of personal pain, of intense persecution, even though it might not be as intense as some of us believe it to be right now, God, we're asking that you sustain us throughout all of it. Because just as you were more than enough when we got saved, you are enough for us now and so much more than enough. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.